Thanks, guys. Good morning, Redeemer. Let me pray. We'll get into Isaiah 47. Uh, God, uh, I pray we would see your mercy. This is great judgment in this text. And uh, pray your mercy would shine forth. So help me to rejoice in that again. Would you restore to us the joy of our salvation? Would we see in what you've done, and would it move us in love toward one another and the world? Send your spirit, help us. Amen. All right, Isaiah 47. Well, you just heard it read, and this is the judgment on Babylon. So let's talk a little bit. I'm going to go verse by verse in here, but before we do, let's talk a little bit about who Babylon is. Babylon, in a simple sense, is the nation in the ancient Near East that took Israel into captivity, right? We've been hearing about them throughout the book. The nation that is now being overrun by Persia and Cyrus, right? That God has raised up another empire to come and take over Babylon and release the Israelite captives and send them back to the Promised Land. So that's that nation. Babylon, some of you may know, is closely related to Babel. So if you remember in the Old Testament, the Tower of Babel, this was after the flood, right? The very first thing that humanity did when they all spoke one language was build a tower for demonic worship, is what it was. And this was a great evil, and God came down and scattered the nations. Babel and Babylon are the same place. It's actually the same Hebrew word. It's translated differently in English for some reason. But basically, Babylon represents the kingdom of evil in the world. So in one sense, it's just a nation. But in another sense, because of its roots of rebellion against God and its great power in the world historically, it has come to represent basically the system of evil, both cosmic and earthly. Babylon is the great metaphor for evil in the world. And we see this in Revelation 18. If you fast forward to the end of the book now, we're talking about end times and God's conquest, Christ's final conquest over sin and evil forever. It is referred to the enemy as Babylon. Revelation 18 says this, After this I saw, so this is John's vision of Christ conquering evil finally, I saw an other angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with its glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, Fallen is Babylon the Great. There it is. Babylon stands for evil opposition to God, both in earthly powers and cosmic powers. It becomes the great metaphor for evil power. She, Babylon, has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. It's basically systems of evil in the world. It's also, I'm going to say this, I believe an appropriate interpretation to say that Babylon, the seeds of Babylon, are found in every human heart. Because what is Babylon but a bunch of Babylonians? That's what it is. It's human. So as we read through this, I'm going to apply this to us. 
to individuals. This is both the collective thing that happens when, when evil conspires against God, but that is just a collection of people conspiring against God. It is the seeds of doubt and unbelief and rebellion in the human heart working collectively. So it is also just a symbol for personal sin. Babylon is a collection of Babylonians, actual people here. When God judges Babylon and says, you will fall, those people are actual people, right? So this is where we said, we don't want to just make this like about nations and so abstract and God's going to judge these nations, and he is. But these nations are filled with humans. So this is very pertinent to us. This isn't just about some nation out there. So let's go. Isaiah 47, verse 1. God speaking to Babylon. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. So there's this imagery that God is using throughout here, and it's this virgin, this privileged, clean, safe, protected, unspoiled virgin. This is who Babylon has been up until this point, in the sense that she has not tasted the wrath of God. She has been unspoiled by war. She's had victory. She has sat protected. She has sat clean. She's the mistress of nations. Everyone looks to her as the model for power and security. And God says, those days are over, O virgin daughter. Come and sit in the dust. So for me, it's helpful to actually like embrace this imagery, right? This is a young maiden, protected and clean. And a picture of this was your daughter. And this is what is going to Befall her. Sit on the ground without a throne. This is judgment. O daughter of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans is another word for Babylonians. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Spoil will come upon you. You have been protected. You have been safe. But you will no longer be called tender and delicate. Something is going to happen to you. Ruin will come upon you. You have lived a life of privilege, but now take the millstones and grind flour. Put off your veil. Strip off your robe. Uncover your legs and pass through the rivers. That's exile. Now again, this is, in one sense, a metaphor for Babylon. But remember, the actual humans this happened to. These are the people of Babylon living in luxury, living in safety because of their empire and their power. And now King Cyrus has been raised up and sent in his judgment, and things are different. Your nakedness shall be uncovered, and your disgrace shall be seen. You will be put to shame. I will take vengeance, and I will spare no one. And then there's this eruption of Praise in verse 4. Our Redeemer. So we talk about the Redeemer. He saves us from our sins and He judges evil. The Lord of hosts is His name, is the Holy One of Israel. Here's what's happening. They're praising God for judging sin, not letting sin go unpunished. The passage goes on to talk to this virgin. Sit in silence. And go in darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called the mistress of the kingdoms. 
The, the golden era is over. And the change is swift, and the change is dark, and the change is powerful. It's the imagery of a virgin being spoiled. This is how swift God's judgment comes. And what we're going to see here is that it's a surprise because we tend to not believe that. Even as I talk now about the judgment of God, is this a present reality? Are we aware, number one, if you're a Christian, of what you've been saved from? Number two, of the threat of judgment that lies on those who don't know Jesus, globally and locally? Or are we just going around living our lives? Judgment will come swiftly. And God says in verse 6, I was angry with my people. He's saying, I sent them into exile. Right? They had sinned against him. He raised up Babylon, brought judgment upon them swiftly. Their lives quickly changed. They went into exile. That was God's doing. And I profaned my heritage. Israel is my heritage. And I sent them to Babylon. I gave them into your hand. But you showed them no mercy. Through that, through what I ordained and did, you were revealed also. Even on the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. Right? So they committed war crimes, basically, right? Even, why do war crimes exist? Because at some level, in most of, of the world right now, there's some sense that like some things are just too far. But Babylon didn't have that line. They showed no mercy, no quarter, even on the aged. They made their yoke exceedingly heavy. Why? We get to the root here of Babylon's sin and pride is this. You said, I shall be mistress forever. I am invincible. I am everlasting. Who's that? That's God. You said to yourself in your heart, basically, I am God. And we'll see this become more and more clear. I have autonomy. I won't fall, certainly won't fall. I am safe. I am protected. You said, I shall be mistress forever, so then that you did not lay these things to heart or remember the end. Now, therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures, <laughs> who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. Now, listen. Whenever we disobey God, that's what we're saying. See, this sounds really bad. I cannot believe Babylon would say that, that she would say in her heart, I am and there is none besides me. And later we see that she says things like, no one sees me. And what I'm saying is Babylon is just the outplaying at a corporate level of the sin in the human heart. When we think no one sees us and God says, forgive one another. And we say, no, we are saying we will be mistresses forever. I am, and there's no one besides me. No one sees me. Now, therefore, 
Verse 8, let me repeat that a little bit. Now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasures who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or nor the lo- know the loss of children. Basically saying I will continue securely as this wonderful mistress and loss and judgment will not befall me. God says this, these two things shall come to you in a moment. In a day. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. Verse 10, you felt secure in your wickedness for you said, no one sees me. It's just me. I'm alone. There is no God. And you said in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone, and ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. The rest of the passage, you can go back and read it on your own. He's basically saying your charmers and your sorcerers haven't done you any good, nor will they. They do not save. They're scattered. So let's go back and deal with some of the themes here. Number one, the human heart is biased. We have a strong bias in our heart toward unbelief, belittling of God, belittling of sin. Our heart tilts toward unbelief. It tilts toward evil. It tilts toward diminishing God. We don't live with a real sense of the possibility of judgment. That God would come swiftly, that the sky would be rolled back like a scroll, and Revelation, the book of Revelations would come to to pass, and the stars would shake and fall like fruit from the trees. We don't live with this sense of disaster will come upon us. We make friends with sin. We make friends with the pleasures we love. We make friends with our unforgiveness and our bitterness. We make friends with gossip. We make friends with laziness. We make friends with lust. We just make friends with these things. And then we say, surely disaster will not come upon me. The heart is biased, but judgment is coming. And here's the thing. It comes suddenly. Verse 9, right? These things shall come in a moment, in one day. Verse 11, evil shall come upon you, which you do not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, and it will come upon you suddenly. There's these two things at play. One is, we think it will never come. The other is, it will come suddenly And that leaves for a horrifying surprise. Our tilt is to push it away. God's not real. He's not really going to deal with stuff. I'm getting away with stuff. He hasn't come yet. Then sudden disaster. Now, the day of the Lord in the Bible is what was referred to in Revelation 18 that I just read, that day when God finally cleans up all of history. That's the great, true and better, final, sudden, shocking disaster at which millions will say, what have we done? (laughs) Right? They will wake up and find themselves in the dust. And as we see later in another passage I have here, they'll cry for the rocks to fall upon them. That's how sudden the judgment comes. 
But there's all these shadow judgments that point to the way that works. One is the fall of Israel. They're going around just worshiping their idols, thinking, hey, we'll be fine. And then all of a sudden, God raises up Babylon and carries them into exile. Sudden disaster. Again, here, the fall of Babylon. It's a shadow of that. It's a sudden disaster. This also shows up in our personal lives. There's sudden disasters. And we tend to think it's not coming. And it can come. We tend to just live in unbelief. My sister-in-law Hannah used to live with me, and I used to love to scare her. I'm a grown man. Kind of. But I would tell her, I'm going to scare you today. So you just wait. And you know what she'd do? She would forget. Surely disaster will not come upon me. But suddenly. You get the point. I've seen this, I've seen this face. Okay, if you're a Christian at all, if you're a Christian, you probably are aware of this experience, right, where you don't come to Jesus all smiling and happy. Some sudden disaster has come upon you. Some, your sin is finally brought to light. It has finally wrecked your life. It has finally wrecked your heart. You come face to face with Babylon in your soul, and you cry to, to, to God to save you. Some of us go to sleep on that and we forget. And we start to build secret lives, secret Babylon lives again. And this is what we're talking about when we cried to God to restore to us the joy of our salvation, that we would remember who we are, who we were, who we are in Him, what He has done, the judgment that He has spared us from, and that we would live in light of that and love Him. I have seen people bring disaster on their lives. We've seen this in the news just recently. I won't name names. You can go look it up. A very famous pastor, disaster just came upon him because he was committing adultery. And I'm sure at some level saying, no one sees. I will not experience disaster. Then something, a text opened, an email undeleted, and disaster has come upon you. I have seen this. I have seen this look in the faces of men sitting across the table from me. I have heard, I have asked them, how do you feel? They say, like, I want to crawl under a rock. Because it has come. Now, it doesn't always have to be these things, adultery and, right, these big secret sexual things that we're hiding. It may be that. But there's things that we tend to make friends with and, snuggle with and say, disaster won't come upon me. And I just want to warn you, you don't want to be there. Like, run to the Lord. Open your hands. Lay your things before Him. We sing about Jesus because He took this judgment for us. This judgment, as horrible as that sounds, and you can read others in the Bible, they're just shadows, again, of what Jesus did. So here's the good news. Here's why we worship Jesus. Because although we know that Babylon, the seeds of Babylon are in the human heart, and that we tend toward unbelief and 
lying and sneaking and evil and sin. God, in his great mercy, sent Jesus to live for us, to live that perfect life and to go to the cross, and that disaster fell on him in our stead. In our stead. If you are a Christian, Isaiah 47 will never befall you ultimately. It was put on Jesus. Jesus went through the waters. Jesus took on the wrath of God. He is our sacrifice. And he also fixes the bias in our heart, right? That we are born with a bias toward unbelief and to not want God and to reject God and to just push him out of our lives. And Jesus sends the Spirit. He tells us in John 16, he's going to send a helper. And this helper will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. If you're a Christian today, it is Yes, the work of Jesus on the cross on your behalf, but it is also the work of Jesus in your heart that sent the Spirit to convict you of sin, to bring you to a place where you no longer say, no one sees, where you say, he sees, right? Where you no longer say, I am, but you say, he is. And you see his great mercy poured out upon you. And so I want to appeal to you, if you're a Christian, to remember this. And I've got some application. I know how much you love that. I have some application. (laughs) But if you're not a Christian, if you're out there and you have not clung to Christ, I want to warn you that Isaiah 47 and many other passages like that are looming over your heart and your life. And you don't want to be there. You want to crawl under this rock. Jesus is the rock. You crawl under Him. Under Him is safety. Under Him is mercy. Under Him is forgiveness. Paul says this in Romans 2, don't presume on God's patience, right? Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But see, when we just presume and think everything is fine and we think we're getting away with something, Paul says this, you're actually just storing up wrath. Because of your hard and penitent heart, you're storing up wrath. You're not getting away with anything. You're just storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It doesn't have to be that way. Take shelter under Jesus, the rock. Two applications. If you are a person who sees that you have been spared from the wrath of God, right? Is one is we are motivated for mission. We want others to know. Joe mentioned this morning about the global church, right? Three billion people live under wrath. They don't, we, as he said, we've been saturated with the gospel. We kind of think everyone knows that, right? Even, even, even the secular culture today will say things like, you know, God is love. That has so permeated the Western world that we think that that's how normal people think or natural people. That's a natural mind, but it's not. The natural mind lives in opposition to God, control of demonic spirits, fear, judgment, guilt, shame, subject to uh, confusion and delusion, and they don't know. They don't know. Three billion people have no chance of knowing. And added to that, we are surrounded with people who don't know. Even though they've heard, they don't know and don't believe. 
And the heart that has been forgiven wants others to know this, right? We know as a church, every church struggles with mission. And the reason it is at the root is that we struggle to believe in the mercy of God. That's it. Like, we need to be reminded of what has happened to us, what we have been spared from, what we deserve apart from Christ, and what He has given to us, that He has seated us with Him, that He has raised us up so high above our station, that He's given me the privilege to stand in front of you and talk about this. This is my life now. Charles Spurgeon says it this way regarding unbelievers in the church's mission. He says this, listen, if sinners will be damned, then let them at least leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions. And let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Redeemer Church, we have a mission. And it is to tell the lost about Jesus. I was talking to a brother recently, and there's grace for this. I love you, brother. But I'm here to point out some things. He said this, I feel like I've done well loving my family, but not necessarily loving the rest of the world. I get what you're saying. There's some responsibilities that God calls us to as parents, and we love our children, and we, and we lay down our lives for them. But to love someone is to show them God, and God is a missionary. God is a missionary. Jesus came, we celebrate Christmas because Jesus came. That's God the missionary coming to earth to save us. And then he grabbed his 12 disciples and he homeschooled them. (laughs) And what was the curriculum? He sent them from day one. He says, let's go. I'm going to love you. I'm going to show you the father. Who's the father? The father is the one that sends the son. Ah, interesting. Now I'm going to send you. As the Father sent me, so I send you. That is love. That is love. We have a distorted vision of love. Listen to this. I don't know who this is. Some pastor, I pulled this quote from. What is my goal for my kids? Is it to keep them off drugs, to get good grades, and come out to church with the family? That might make for training a good American, but not necessarily for training a good Christian. I want, to see, I want my children to see their role as a Christian is not only preventing themselves from being stained by the world, here's where many Christian parents stop, but also empowered by the Holy Spirit to use, be used as an agent to transform the world. It's helping them to understand, modeling it for them. They won't know it unless we model it. Jesus didn't just sit with his disciples and give them a lesson on missional living and then send them out. He said, let's go. Walk with me. Let me show you something. Let me show you how we interact with the lost. Let me show you how we interact with the woman at the well. Let me show you how we interact with the Pharisees. Come and see. Watch me. Modeling it for them and giving them opportunities to be ambassadors for Christ. So there's grace for all our failures. And there's grace to empower us to move out of them, okay? 
Now, I'm preaching to myself here. And we want to have merciful hearts toward one another. If we are recipients of mercy, we want to be merciful toward one another. Ephesians 4, oh, I just, I want this to be our church's verse in this season. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Some of us hear that and just say no. Be tender-hearted and forgive one another. Well, not them. But you don't know what they did. He knows. Overheard my couple of my kids, who shall remain unnamed, going at it the other day. So I stepped in and said, what's going on? And what proceeded, or what, what ensued, was predictable. It's what I call splinter talk. Tell me what's going on. She did blah, 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 blah. I'm changing pronouns here on purpose so you don't know. He did blah, 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 blah. I call that splinter talk. And I predict it. Well, tell me what's going on, and I'm ready. Okay, here comes the splinter talk. What I mean is this. Jesus says, when you have something against your brother, first, deal with the log. There is a log in your eye and in your heart the size of Babylon. And you want to talk to me about splinters, but that's what we do. Splinter talk. Okay, thank you for that predictable turn of events. Now, tell me about logs. The words flow a lot slower. This is that bias in the human heart. Oh, the splinters, the splinters, the splinters. But it's logs that destroy. And so let me apply that to the church. And I'm just going to speak to you very directly as a pastor. I want to hear more about logs. I hear people concerned about unity in the church because 2020 has been trying in different ways. And that's fair. But you know what? Splinters don't divide. Logs do. I get a lot of splinter emails and texts. People telling me all about all the splinters all over the church. Maybe twice a year, someone wants to tell me about their log. And I just don't understand. How could the church be divided to the extent that it is if there aren't any logs? Where did all the logs go? Be concerned. Pray for the church. Look at your log. And I'll probably ask you, if you tell me about, hey, I'm concerned about so-and-so's things, I'll be like, okay, there's some splinters. Let's talk about some logs. You know what this means? None of you are going to bring this up to me at all. <laughs> That's all I'm ensuring. Splinters blow away. Logs. If I was to drop a log, if I was to throw a splinter out there right now, nobody would, except Dylan, catch it in the eye. That's fine. <laughs> but a log, psh, 
right? This is the stuff. This stuff we build, we don't build stuff with splinters. We build with logs, right? Logs of confessed and repented sin drenched in the blood of Christ. That will hold a church together, right? So let me just leave us with this. Go back to Paul's words. And I just pray for the Spirit to help us. Because sometimes, I'm just going to tell you. When I saw Glenn in the parking lot this morning, do you remember what I said to you? You ready to waste some time? Because I'm just going to talk. And we're going to hear Paul's exhortation to be kind, tenderhearted, and forgive one another. And then we'll say, no. (laughs) Okay, now that's cynical. And God is with us, and the Spirit does move, and He does bring reconciliation and forgiveness, and He's not gone. He's not gone. And I can get overly discouraged by when I see an impasse. Okay, and that's because I can tilt toward unbelief. So pray for me. I think the heart of this is this. I want that. I want to do that. I want to forgive you. I want to be tender hearted. And I know how quickly I can start to make a list for why it's okay that I'm not so tender hearted right now. Do you guys reckon? Do you do this? Well, It's usually attached to someone's name and their splinters. So, the people of mercy are merciful. Let's be that. So let's enter a time of response. Let me invite the musicians up. And let's not waste time. (laughs) God's not wasting His time. He's with us. He's for us. Even when it's hard to see. So we'll sing and ask God to use that to dig into our hearts and bring change. I pray that you guys would make this specific, like either, right, what's the thing that you're making friends with that uh, you think is, uh, you know, judgment won't suddenly come and disaster, or, and, or, who is it that the, the, who you're too concerned about their splinters? And you need to stop. And you think about your log and ask God to show you that, that log. What is that? How are you contributing to disunity in the church? Certainly somebody here. Otherwise, it's an illusion, right? So may God's Spirit reveal that. If you feel like God is revealing a word for you, for the body today, that He has a message for Redeemer Church to hear from the Spirit, we ask that you would submit that to Glenn here in Cedar Rapids. If you're in Cedar Falls, to the MC. And uh, yeah, and we'll take communion. So if you have uh, a communion cup, if you don't have one, they're available by the entrances. And uh, this is the time to come and remember, this is where the place where disaster fell upon Jesus in our stead. This is the place of mercy, right? Isaiah 47 and many other texts like that about judgment. 
we are freed from because Jesus stood in our place, right? And he was literally broken, right? That's, it's a literal death. The bread rec- represents his body being broken and his blood being poured out. He received in full the wrath of God, was disclosed. His nakedness was exposed. He sat in the dust. I mean, all that stuff fell upon him instead of us, so we rejoice. Just hear from the words of Jesus. Jesus, when he took the bread, had given thanks. He broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So on your own or with friends and family as you pray and thank God for his grace, eat and drink together. God, we love you. and We thank you. Pray. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to be preached. Just, we invite you to come and serve us. We need your spirit to bring revelation and transformation, God. Come and do your thing. Amen.